Well, hey, Ed, it's been great to hang with you the past couple of days here at ICAST in Orlando. And I've heard stories <laughs> over the years about everything that you're doing in Oman and um, just the amazing operation you have. It's been good just to get to get to peek behind that curtain a little bit the past couple of days and yeah. have you on the show. Sweet. Well, yeah, it's been, um, I was saying to you earlier, but pleasure, pleasure to hang out with you guys um, and all the... I love hanging out at the Skinny Water Stand. That's sort of where my first ICAS started, and Vince and Jen introducing me to everyone, and sort of that's what's followed on with this year, like hanging out with you, and yeah, really, really cool cats, man. Enjoy, enjoy coming over. Yeah, and it's fun just to sit down. We're at the Skinny Water Culture booth right now. So if you hear a little bit of background noise, it's just the uh, commotion and fun of ICAS. So. For those who maybe don't know about No Boundaries Oman, mm -hmm. give them an overview of kind of the operation that you've built out there. Yeah, um, well, where we're at right now is, uh, uh, I, I guess, the flagship part of my operation would be uh, our mothership. We've got a, over 100 feet luxury. It's like a hybrid. It's built from the outside as a traditional Arabic dhow, um, but uh, on the inside, it's luxury yacht. So, and, and we built that from, from scratch. It was a two-year project. Um, and, and that's sort of like where the business is at now. But for a long time before that, we had lodges that were on the mainland. Mm -hmm. um, and we fish a group of islands offshore in southern Oman called the Halania Islands. There's five islands there. And they're about 60 kilometers offshore. And uh, so we've got a really good inshore fishery and an offshore fishery. Uh, and, and we have lodges on the mainland. And just as my business kept progressing and progressing, always the dream was... I used to hate it when it was so rough and you got to run a whole 60k offshore and and I was always used to think wow how good would it be to spend a whole week out here kind of a thing so it was a big dangling carrot for something to work for and uh, and yeah we built we built that mothership so now the operation is uh, we have the lodges um, on the mainland um, and for the people who want to come and do like more uh, if they want to chase the permit on fly for example or they want to do some light tackle inshore stuff. We've got that operation and we can still access the islands from there. But the, the main part of the operation now is, um, is the mothership. Give me a talk through about, because I've had several different groups of friends go and, and visit and fish with you. Give kind of an overview of what people would expect if they were coming. So you fly into Dubai? Yeah, you can fly in uh, internationally. I mean, there's a lot of decent hubs there in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of good airlines, man, we know with the... All that, all that oil money with the with the Arabs. They got the, you know, they got Etihad and Qatar Airways and Emirates. Mm -hmm. uh, Oman Air is also a, a decent airline. But I think from people in this part of the world, from the states, you'd be flying it to Dubai or to Qatar, mm -hmm. and then you get a direct flight to Salalah into Southern Oman from there, um, where where we would meet you. But in terms of what to expect, um, I mean. I, I guess I'll get this one just straight off the bat. In terms of what to expect, would be one, it's safe. Um, mm -hmm. It, it, it's sort of a, a reoccurring theme and or a question that we get asked quite a lot about people wanting to come to that part of the world you know is it safe and first and foremost it is it's actually probably you know the only places are like I've ever been like robbed or mugged or something like that would be like London and a lot of, you know a lot of places where I tell people oh I'm going here and no one asks me the question oh I wonder you know is that safe you're going to London or well, doesn't even cross your mind but like I've experienced more crime and everything than I have in my whole life I grew up in in the Middle East and it's uh, yeah, actually very safe and the Omanis as a, as a culture and as a people really really nice and friendly so you'd experience um, you know big smiles and, uh, and and friendly people the culture is obviously very different mm -hmm. landscape there very dry and arid camels everywhere like that <laughs> that you know I, I, people picture 
the Middle East and seeing camels and stuff, well, that's actually legit. That is, yeah. <laughs> you know, how it is. <laughs> Those things are absolutely everywhere. Um, and so, um, you know, whilst the rest of the, of the Middle East has really expanded and there's been a lot of growth in the last 30 to 40 years, um, the, the king, the sheikh, uh, he's called the Sultan in Oman, um, they've really wanted to keep uh, their culture and their heritage and, and really keep it as a adventure sort of destination place mm. rather than going down the same route as, as Dubai and, and in terms of all the infrastructure and buildings and all that type of thing. So it's, it's still very wild. Um, you know, it's almost like you step back in, in time and see the camel herders and the, the very simple lives that people live. There's not much money there. Um, and and then the stark contrast to the beauty and the, and the aridness of that dry land is just the wildest oceans. The Indian Ocean there is just teeming, teeming with life. So, yeah, I think, yeah, you know, like just, just, to, just to round up, I guess, you know, you're coming to a safe place. Um, and culturally very welcoming but very different as well it's a very very different culture so i fly in you guys come pick me up mm -hmm. now do you still own the lodges or have you just focused on the mothership? no yeah we still got both okay. so if if you were if you were going on the mothership she's called notice temptress if you were going on notice um you fly into salala you uh, generally you don't want to miss the boat so you generally try and get in yeah. a day before <laughs> so like some people are like oh yeah it's a long paddle yeah yeah the boat like departs like 8 a.m and some people are wondering oh yeah we know we're rocking our flight arrives at 2 a.m in the morning and i'm like bro like you know you arrive or your rod tube doesn't arrive or your luggage or god forbid your flight's delayed or anything and like you know we can't hold up the whole operation unless yeah. your group has booked the whole the entire group, the entire yeah. boat but if you're like joining was a single angler anyway so you'd arrive the day before and um, there's a marina there that's got a couple of generic like tourist hotels mm -hmm. and you'd stay there and then yeah you board in the morning and then we sail sail up the coast it's about eight to ten hour sail um, out to the islands um, and you just take that time just to chill obviously unpack unpack your bags rig up all your rods we've got a cool rigging station on the back of the boat we've got like mm -hmm. 70 rod holders you know uh, vertical roof uh, rod holders or you just rig up all your stuff and crack open a beer and have that excitement for the maybe for the eight hours trip. maybe two beers <laughs> maybe <laughs> depending on how heavy they are yeah no so and then life on the the boat it's you know waking up in the morning breakfast what's mm. what's uh kind of the while we're out there give us a talk through of what that looks like yeah so uh, again d depending like normally for the people who book the boat exclusively, you know, we'll have the discussion as a as a as a group as to what species that they, that they want to chase, mm -hmm. whether they're fly anglers or, you know, top water. Predominantly, we're, we've been working hard the last few years getting more into the fly market uh, and some, getting some good fly anglers to come over. But before that, it was generally top water. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so you know, you would have the discussion. What is it that you want to chase? Um, we'd look at the tides, especially for the for the GTs. You know, we want a, a good push. So, uh, you know, we'd have the chat and then you'd wake up 4.30, 5 o'clock, you know, it's still dark, cook breakfast in the boat. Uh, we've got a chef on board. So, uh, you know, each day you, you may be asking what eggs you want or French toast or pancakes. I mean, it's not a five-star service, but it's, you know, it's good, good hearty food. Mm -hmm. um, so you get a cook breakfast, then uh, we'll have three or four center consoles with the mothership. So they'll be anchored. Uh, we generally keep one alongside. Um, 
depending on how rough it is, if it's rough, we would just anchor all, all three or four. But yeah, then we, we just we just head out from from there, um, and and like I said, depending on what you you wanted to catch, it would be that will decide where would we go to the deeper reefs where the GTs are, or you know, there's there's some really awesome parrot fish permit. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a, a big variety, and that would sort of determine what your morning would look like. Uh, and then you come back on the mothership for lunch. We get like a two-hour break again, another cooked, cooked meal at lunch, mm-hmm. shower, AC. It can get pretty hot there, so it's always yeah. nice to get out of the elements or windy, <laughs> freshen up a little bit. Yeah. I personally love a nap, um, and then and then head back out for the afternoon session and fish until sunset. Yeah. And if you really still want more, then you, you, then we put the underwater lights on on the mothership and stuff like that. And there's a a lot of fish come up into the lights, so guys have had some some really good fishing off the back of the boat, off the oh, stern wow. there. We've got a dive platform and a big floating dock. Um, but yeah, that's that would be a typical day, really. Two sessions, Sounds a amazing. lot of food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a lot of food, two sessions, maybe yeah. some night fishing. Sounds great. Yeah, man. Yeah, so for you, what's your what's your story and kind of how you, you ended up in a fishery, mm. an eight to 10 hour ride from where you launch out of? And yeah. How do you go from, because you're, and you can give a little bit of your, your background, um, but you know, you grew up in Dubai. Yeah. You were born in England. Mm-hmm. And then eventually you're running a pretty serious operation off the, yeah. <laughs> in the middle of nowhere, Oman. So how does that, how does um, that all, give us the rundown there? Yeah, she's, uh, it's, it's a good question. I, and I sometimes pinch myself and uh, I've been pinching myself a lot actually this ICAST because uh, although I've been to a few, I've been walking around this ICAS and it's the first time I've really sort of been going around and people are stopping me and being like, oh, you know, you're Ed from the boundaries. And mm-hmm. I'm a bit, bit blown away by that. And so, mm-hmm. I've, I've, it, yeah, it's it, the business has, has really grown uh, organically. But just to, I mean, yeah, like you say, I was born in the UK, went to Dubai in the early 80s. I was like sort of the first generation of Western expats who... Uh, started their schooling there, went through the whole schooling system in that part of the world. And then I, I traveled a lot, but we'd always been, we'd always been quite uh, transitional or moving around as a family. Like when the first Gulf War was on, uh, we left and we went and lived in Kenya and I went and, and lived in Kenya for a little while and then we were in Dubai and then something happened and we had to go back to the UK for a year. So I'd always grown up moving around quite a lot. Um, and then uh, I backpacked, uh, for the best part of two years, went, went around the world backpacking and traveled a lot. So by the time I got back to Dubai, I already had itchy feet. And like I said, I'd already been like moving around. I didn't like to stay in one place for too long, but I also wasn't really enjoying what Dubai had become at that stage. Like as a young boy, I was on the beach or, you know, I was always in the water or camping or in the desert. And, you know, in, in the space of 20, 25 years, sort of all that is still there in Dubai, but a lot of it got taken away from me um, and as this city you know got built up around me all your favorite beaches or your favorite fishing spots or camping spots all that sort of stuff disappeared Um, and I started looking towards Oman and for a bit of adventure and um, about 17 or 18 I had a a, a good friend of mine whose dad was like OG fly guy he's like he was in his 60s and, and he'd grown up in Oman and in Muscat and he he was always raving about fishing and uh, I just I just throw like a dead bait at that point. That was like, yeah, you know, just to go on the on the beach with the boys and have a fire and 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 throw out a dead bait. And I used to love fishing like that. So anyway, he took me down to Oman on a trip, uh, and I was watching him 
spin fish and fly fish you know that, that sort of really opened my eyes mm-hmm. to to different types of fishing but initially i was just throwing dead baits and catching like huge stingrays and shovel nose sharks and stuff like that um and and yeah so that guy really showed me oh man and then when i got like 18 19 and we had our first trucks i started exploring more of that coastline and um the excitement of of, of doing that and and seeing what was out there alongside all of that sort of stuff like in the, a city being built up around me just sort of pushed me to think okay i'm gonna i'm gonna move or, or live down there and it was something i wanted to do for a long time but uh i mean southern oman especially there's no one there yeah. so i wasn't i was quite apprehensive about going down there alone so uh <laughs> i managed to uh pick up a poor unsuspecting lady and uh and get married and then uh, took her down there so, so i wasn't so alone but i mean she's she's been a, a legend through all of this actually those first few years i think were quite hard on her because initially i was i was the guide and i was the chef and i was the host and i had one boat um and, and we had a newborn son so she went down there with like my son when he was six weeks old and i just i was pretty much offshore every day mm-hmm. uh, and then i'd come home and, and I'd, I'd look after the guests and i'd just be so tired at like go at eight o'clock so for the first year I mean, thankfully, she had Phoenix, uh, my oldest son, to keep her busy. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, we, we really did move down into the middle of nowhere. And honestly speaking, I, I don't think I knew anything at that point. Uh, even, even my boat skills were, you know, low level. Um, although I'd fished quite a lot, I was by no, no means a professional fisherman. Or mm-hmm. I remember the first, like, 50 monster gts i hooked i lost every single one and it yeah. was just like a trial and error process of what you know i learned one thing and then the next thing would go wrong yeah and there was no one there no one there to show me also i, I you know i hadn't been working in that industry before mm-hmm. and i didn't know how good the fishery was either i just i really took a chance to be honest i just yeah. got i got really lucky i guess ultimately luck and hard work mm-hmm. um but yeah it was the trial and error process of, of all of that i also remember in, in my first season, I, I towed, I was towing the boat to go launch, and I had these, I had these Aussie customers in the car, and uh, one of the wheels of the trailer just came off. I was like driving along, and one of my wheels on my trailer like overtook <laughs> the car, and uh, and I was like, oh shit, like this isn't good. And then the Aussie, the Aussie boat was like, oh, truth, mate, one of your fucking bearings is gone, <laughs> and I was like, bearing, like, oh shit, bearings. I didn't have any spare bearings, like you know, I had yeah. nothing, and and we're in the middle of nowhere. Anyway, thankfully we might we still managed to fish and, and launch, but it was stuff like that. I mean, that was just one example of many, of of then like being okay. I need bearings, so yeah. then like then I stock all, all bearings and everything. I need that, and then something else will go wrong. And like okay, now we need that. And over the years, um, you know, we've invested heavily. I mean, first and foremost for me, that's the most important thing. Like come, you know, you're spending all your money, you're making such a huge effort, you're going halfway around the world. And then you arrive and you're like, oh yeah, my boat's not working or there's an engine down or something. And sure, like shit happens. Yeah. But um, stuff like that, you know, it's really, I, I take pride in having that responsibility. So now we have a whole workshop. We've built a whole workshop. We've got, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars of, of parts and engines and hoists. I've got two full-time mechanics on the team. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, but it, it all came from, from trial and error basically. And, and the business grew organically. I had one boat that first season. Mm-hmm. And, and I didn't know how good the fishing would be. Um, and then I started posting a few reports once I'd figured out how to get those big fish in the boat. Um, posting a few reports and then, yeah, the business really grew organically and took off. And, mm-hmm. and the evolution started there, I guess, of like as me as a, 
uh, you know, my angling, uh, running a business, um, and and yeah, just grew over the years. Into yeah, what and I, I want to talk more about the evolution, but let's zero in for a moment. You six week old son, mm. your wife, you guys moved to South mm. Oman, mm -hmm. and you're in that season where you're taking a risk, you're trying to figure it out. Yeah. You know, trial and error. I'm guessing just going out and exploring. Yeah. What were some of the things in that season that shaped you? Because to a lot of people, you know, removing the, the challenges that many people have not experienced, that sounds like a dream. Yeah. To be able to be somewhere that's so untouched or so uh, un unknown. Yeah. But what were some of the things that you experienced in that season that helped shape you into who you are today? And mm, I guess, I mean, perseverance would, would be something that, uh, I mean, I've always been pretty stubborn um, mm. and, uh, and I've, I've never minded, like I said, I was always in the water or camping or, or doing that, that type of stuff or generally mm -hmm. just being outdoors. So, I mean, one, I was obviously in my element on that side, just mm -hmm. to, like you say, just to, every day was something new. Even still, if I go there now, it's, mm -hmm. it's so easy to be blown away. But challenges, I mean, one being so remote, we were 400 kilometers from the nearest supermarket. Um, so if I forgot the wife's chocolate or something like that, so you're in big trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know about any particular lessons other than just, just like I was saying before, I guess just a lot of trial and error, just having to keep picking yourself up, be determined just to just, just to keep pushing through, but initially I hadn't started it up thinking it was going to be, I mean, I'd, I'd hoped it was going to be a successful business, but like, uh, I think I more went there to discover myself and to, to spend, you know, some really quality time with, with my boy and, and, mm -hmm. and with Angela. Um, and, and then, I mean, there's just lots of stories uh, along the way of, of trial and error, injuries uh, and, and stuff like that, and just having, just having to yeah, just, just keep going, man. Just be determined to, to succeed. Maybe I can ask it this way, too. Let's say that for somebody who grows up in a fishery that is really developed, I mm. mean, they have, you know, computer chips that yeah. tell them where it's safe to run. They have yeah. ice in supermarkets on every corner. Mm -hmm. They have access to a lot of people who fish there yeah. and can give them tips and pointers and yeah. mentors. And there's a lot of good in that, mm -hmm. but what what are they missing that you feel like maybe you got from being in that environment? Yeah, I I, I talked about the luck part before, and it was I, I definitely feel I got, I got dealt a really good hand with that mm -hmm. the opportunity I had to to get there to to really explore. There were you know some other people coming down every now and again to try and fish it, but no mm -hmm. one was living there. We were actually the first Western family to ever live. A small village is called Ash Shwayamia. And um, we were the first Western people to ever live. And, and people were like, what the hell are these people? Like, <laughs> what are these people doing? They, they, people yeah. were freaking out. And we even had the first dog that they'd ever seen. Our house was like, a, it was like the local amusement park or zoo the first like, month. People would just come and like, can we see your dog? And like, they'd be like, oh my God, it's a dog. And like, it was, it was I mean, I said before about the Omani culture, I, I was really blown away actually yeah. because we were, we, you know, we were far away from family, far away from friends um, and I was looking for adventure and I certainly got it. I almost bit off more than I could chew, you know, that, that first year. We, it was quite lonely <laughs> yeah. um, and, and to go out on the waters, like you say, there's, uh, at that point I, was, I think I was running some Garmin but their, their maps 
were completely off, like, you know, the, and, and nothing was really marked at all. And uh, I had an Omani guy uh, called Omar, he was working for me. And um, al although they're very lovely people, they're also quite, I don't want to upset any Omanis, maybe listen to this, but I mean, they'll probably be the first to admit it, but they're, they're quite lazy or mm -hmm. uh, uh, the people down in that Southern Oman, they're not that well educated. And mm -hmm. uh, generally as a culture, um, they're up most of the night and sleep most of the day. So I had this guy working for me and like every day, I'd be the first on the boat with the customers and then he would like rock in like 45 minutes late with his mm -hmm. coffee in hand and half asleep. And But he, he, knew, he knew some of the islands, but he didn't know anything really about topwater fishing. They all yeah. saw hand line and stuff like that. So he helped me um, find a lot of the reefs initially, like the main sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then after that, it was, yeah, just, you know, playground was open, man. Once, once I had the basics to, yeah. to start exploring, things just fell into place. And like, you know, there was one particular reef, this ended up being like my favorite spot for years, but there's one particular reef where you could see it was super shallow. And the way that we like to fish for the, for the GTs um, is, you know, we, we turn the engines off and we drift into to wherever we want to fish, like proper ninja mode. Mm -hmm. And so I could see the rocks are like, say they're a hundred meters away or something. And so I turned the engines off for a hundred meters away. Then all of a sudden would hook up like first cast. Mm -hmm. So now I'm like, oh, like, like we're in like 30 meter of water but the rocks are all the way over there but we've, we've, you know we've hooked a fish here so then I you know hit mark uh, and, and make a new mark then the next day I'll be like, I caught a fish there so I'll start 100 meters away again from where I caught that fish yesterday mm -hmm. and then second cast and now I'm like 200 meters away from this thing second cast uh, of this much longer drift fish on and I'm like oh shit like this is good so then a mark and then the next day another 100 meters and over the space of like a whole season I was fishing that spot a lot at that point I marked out like a, it, was, it ended up being like a two kilometer drift. If the, if the wind and the current are right, you can get mm -hmm. like this super long drift. And it was like a huge mountain ridge that I personally like, you know, marked out this, this whole thing and really discovered that spot and these fish sitting, you know, in like 50, 60 meters of water, mm. which was like unheard of. Everyone, you know, the, the, before all of this, we'll just go straight to the white water, casting super skinny water and mm -hmm. to find all these deeper reefs and stuff like that. So I definitely had that sense of like, self-fulfillment achievement like I yeah. did achieve something and yeah it was just it was super exciting so you said a phrase earlier the playground's open yeah all right so you you go down little baby wife first western family got your dog <laughs> you're learning the terrain you're starting to figure things out momentum is building mm -hmm. take me from that moment to where you sit now, where you got lodges, mothership, yeah. skiffs. Yeah. We're not skiffs, but multiple boats. Yeah, we got a fleet. Talk me to that. Oh, man. Um, what was building, I guess, the infrastructure like after learning the fishery? Yeah, so I mean, like I was saying, I had that I had that one boat season one, and then by the end of season one, I, there, there was more demand, and I could see more people wanted to come, and mm -hmm. I, I could fill two boats, and then, and then I could fill three boats, and I don't know, man. It, it, I often ask myself the question and I, and I look back at the last, you know, in hindsight, like obviously with COVID and everything that happened, but not that I, not that I did bite off more than I could chew, but at, at one point there was definitely a happy, a happy medium yeah. in what I was doing where like the business was thriving, but 
it wasn't so much of a burden in terms of stress and how much effort I had to put in and financially mm. compared to the reward. Like when I just had a couple of boats and I had my lodges and like we we're a bit of a smaller company, like it seemed really easy and everything was really great. And like now I've got this huge operation, like I say, you know, we've got a whole workshop and we've got a, a big team and we've got ex Sri Lankan Navy boys and mechanics and I've got that mothership and it's mm. like, it's it's a lot, man. It's it's really a lot. It's it's so. I don't know if I do anything differently because, I mean, I love it. I, it's, yeah. it's to go out on my mothership as well. It's just like some, you know, I don't even have to fish there anymore. Sometimes I'm just yeah. looking around like, wow, you know, I've achieved this and it feels great. But yeah, man, it it it, it took a lot of hard work, obviously a, a lot of stress, and I, I think at one point there was a really happy, a happy medium. Um, but no, I yeah, from 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 where I was to to where I am. Yeah, just a lot of hard work and, and luck, I think. When you think about the challenges of learning fishery, infrastructure, mm. low infrastructure, you know, um, you think about building teams. When you look back over all of that, what was the hardest hurdle for you to cross? Uh, I, the, the team part, I think when you say that, the team part is the, is the hardest hurdle. Um, I think that's a challenge no matter where you are in the world. Mm -hmm. um, Especially when when you you're you know you're working so close knit and you're with everyone all day every day and and then throw that when you're on a on a ship, mm -hmm. um, so you're really on top of each other, uh, and and you know how you know when you're guiding and it's on you're tough you're tired, mm -hmm. and and so to build a team, to work in that sort of environment I think is tough anyway. But I'd also like to think I'm I'm good with that. I played a lot of rugby, a lot of team sports, um, and uh, I led a lot of teams. So I, I think I'm quite good at getting like good personalities or people that will fit you know mm -hmm. you don't want 10 eds on the team like it wouldn't work you need to yeah. have the quiet guy you need to have this so i'm i'm good at reading people's personalities but the biggest challenge is being in southern oman itself because for these guys who come over um like i was saying earlier about how culturally different it is and you're in the middle of nowhere yeah um it, it, it's not sustainable for a lot of people if, if if i'm really lucky if i can get like two years if I can get two years out of a guide, um, that's good innings. And, yeah. and, and when we're looking for people to come and, and to join us, I'm, I'm really saying, listen, because it takes everyone a year to get them where I really you know, want them to be. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I say that's my biggest challenge, man, is this being the, the coming and going of guides. I've got a, thankfully, I've got a really good core of my team that's been there yeah. um, since the beginning. Still got a couple of guys who are like that. And the, but the, for, for for the, for the Western guides that come in, uh, I think it's just a challenge itself. Lucky for me, you know, I had my wife and my yeah. and now, you know, I got two kids and stuff like that. But so I was quite happy. But to be there as a as a single single guy, yeah, in that culture as well, where there's you know it's it's hard to get beers. People can bring all their own duty free, which we strongly encourage everyone to do. Yeah. <laughs> bring your full supply. Um, but it can be hard even just to get beers or, you know, there's no pub, you can't pop down the pub or, yeah. you know, obviously everyone wants to chase a bit of tail or these, all these single guys on the boat and then they, they want to go and get a bit wild here and there and they don't have that release. Mm -hmm. So I'd say that's probably been, there's been a lot of other challenges, but I'd say that's probably the biggest sticking point is like, I'd love to have a bunch of people that have been with me for a much longer period, but with yeah. the guides, they sort of come and go. When you were talking earlier, you talked about obviously there were injuries and just sketchy mm. moments. What mm. what are some of the stories or a story where things just got got really sideways and 
well, you thought something bad was going down. Yeah. Oh man, I, I mean, I could, I could pick so many. I think one, it just popped into my mind earlier. I think there's been more sketchy, but this one is it, what I was thinking about when I was talking about that. So I had my first boat and um, on my T-top, I obviously got a bunch of rod holders to put, you know, put all our rods up. And, but there wasn't quite enough on my first boat. So at the end of, this, end of my first season, I built a second boat. I said, okay, put some more rod holders you know, on the T-top. And I got in the habit of like, when we're on a drift, um, like I was saying earlier, so engines are off, we're complete ninja mode. Um, and as a guide at that point, you know, you're obviously watching all the laws because you know, those, those GTs will punish you, man. When you, yeah. when you hook them, all they want to do is go straight to the reef. So you're fishing crazy, crazy heavy drag. And we only fish barbless hooks in, um, in the barangays. It's something I enforce for the safety of uh, the anglers, but also because a lot of these fish will beat you. And then like, I'll, I'll you know, I'll feel terrible. Mm -hmm. The fish, you know, beats me in a battle and then I, it's got this huge law stuck in its face. So, um, and they come out really easy with the barbless hooks. Um, I think I got completely off track there. <laughs> a sketchy moment. Um, yeah, but uh, so what I was sitting, uh, or what I was saying is, yeah, so I'm watching the laws uh, of people fishing and we're in ninja mode. So as soon as they hook up, especially with the barbless hooks, as soon as they hook up, you've got to be super quick. Or like if someone says, oh, there's a fish there. I, I always used to have the habit of season one of like jumping up uh, from like my center console, I'd grab, the, I'd hold the T-top and I'd stand up on the gunnel to like get a really high view of the laws. Mm -hmm. um, and over the summer, I built this new boat. It was like first day of the season. And the, this new boat had new rod holders like yeah. in the side where I'd normally stand up. And mm -hmm. it was like near the end of the day and we hadn't been quite slow fishing that day. And finally in the day, someone was like, oh, there's a fish on my law, there's a fish on my law. So like my instinct was to be what I always used to do, like to stand up, put one foot on the gunnel, grab the T-top and like pull myself up and stand up on the gunnel and have a look. And as I did that, I just felt this rod holder just like go like deep, like right into my skull. Uh, and I just remember like, uh, just like opening my eyes and I was on the floor in the boat and this blood was just pissed. You know what head wounds are like, mate? Uh, and I looked up at the T-top and I could see like a bit of my scalp and my hair was like on, uh, on, on the bottom of this rod holder. And, and it was just me in the boat, you know, I didn't have a deckhand or anything like that. And the customers were losing their minds. And I was like, on the verge of passing out, but obviously I had to play it like really cool. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, I got this boy, he's like, don't worry. Like meanwhile, there's like pints of blood like spraying out of my head. But uh, we, we, got, we got the, we got the, the, the wound to eventually stop bleeding and yeah. just bandaged me all up. Oh my god! And then like, I still had like a 60K run back in shore uh, and put the boat on the trailer and yeah. like, uh, it was just, that was a bit of a nightmare. But other, otherwise, some other big stories would just Stitches be like- Stitches or what? Oh yeah, fuck yeah. And, and yeah, that was also hectic. Yeah, because yeah, I'm guessing that that's not a, uh, just an easy little- No, you it's know, like go to the, the camel doctor and, and like use a bit of a- is that what you did? You went to a camel doctor? <laughs> no, I mean, it wasn't far off. I mean, yeah. If 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 I if I tell you guys I went to the clinic, like you're going to be preaching. Oh yeah, he just goes to the clinic. You went to like, like a guy's house. Pretty much, like some dirty, like yeah. yeah. But someone just oh. yeah, and and there was there was a few few ones like that. And again with the barbless hooked, another one was some guy. It was day three, and up until that point, I caught him like four times. I kept mm -hmm. checking his laws throughout the day, and. Um, no, I was unhooking a fish and I saw there was a barb. It was like day one. I was like, dude, I was like, you've still got barbs on this. And I was like, get my pliers, crush all these barbs down. Oh yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. And then he changed his laws and he kept going back to barbs. And I told him like three or four times. And then like day three, we catch this queen fish. Um, 
and I'm generally quite safe. I make a big effort, you know, obviously mm -hmm. trying not to get a hook in me. Um, anyway, this thing goes wild, and I got a hook, and it went right through the joint in my middle finger, and it was like actually in the joint, and um, and the same thing. So I, we go we go to this little doctor place, and he's freaking out because I'm just telling him like just numb it, and we you know we'll push it through, but it's like it's in the joint, and he didn't want to do that. He's trying to tell me I got to drive to four four hundred kilometers to the supermarket at the supermarket to Salala, uh, and go to a proper hospital, but like. Yeah, you know, we're on charter. You've got to do what you got to do. But ended up just like pushing it through myself oh. and cutting it off. And how was the recovery of that? Like, do you still have issues with that joint or uh, no damage? No, really? I got no issues with my joints. Um, <laughs> no, no, that that thing is fine. Yeah, yeah, it's all right. When you think back to, I mean, obviously you had we could probably sit here and you could tell horror stories mm. of of that. But when you think back to like all the meaningful moments mm -hmm. that you've experienced as you've been developing no boundaries. Mm -hmm. If you could only have one memory in your last days, okay. What, as far as fishing goes, let's remove family, but just as far as fishing developing goes, what do you feel like is the most meaningful memory that you want to hold on to? Um, I'd, I'd probably say, I mean, it's got to be my biggest GT. I, I, mm -hmm. I think. Um, uh, I'd, I'd say the, the two biggest things. Uh, and they were both my biggest fish. One was uh, I caught and weighed uh, like a 68 to a 70 kilo GT, mm -hmm. um, which is the biggest GT that's ever been caught out of a boat. Um, so that that was great. That gave my business loads of traction, loads yeah. of interest. What's and, the story there? Um, it was on that same reef that I was talking about earlier mm -hmm. that, that I'd like marked and, and pinpointed all the little pinnacles and stuff over the over took me about a year and a half, two years, I think, before I really had that whole reef dialed in. Um, and, the, and the fishing was red hot. We'd had like a bunch of 40, 50 kilo, I think we'd even had like a 60 kilo fish. And over the space of like five days, his bite just kept getting better and better and the fish just kept getting bigger and bigger. And I, we went home that night and we were talking about that exact thing, like, wow, like this is getting better and the fish are getting bigger. And I said, there's gonna be a chance, there's gotta be the ghost. You know, everyone talks about the big GTs as the ghost. and I said, you know, he's got to be there. And so that night I found like this biggest popper. It was like 200 grams. I got like the biggest hooks and I just re-rigged everything. Yeah. And uh, this all the stars aligned. The next morning, first drift, I hooked this thing. And then I was, I was saying like, I said to, during the fight, I was like, this is either, this is either, this is either him or foul hooks, like mm. a foul hook something. Uh, anyway, the battle was brutal and, and I managed to bring in this fish and it was just, you could just see from the, the proportions of it, it was just an absolute beast. And uh, I, I caught, yeah, that, that monster. So I think that's, that's, that would be one. And there's another good one and there's actually a video of this. Um, if anyone's listening and want to watch it, you can go to the, the No Boundaries Zone Man page on Instagram mm -hmm. and it's, uh, it's, it's there in our, in our bio, it's a link. And uh, I went out with the family, it was during COVID. Mm -hmm. So we'd built the mothership and then we only got, we launched her and we only got two weeks of operations before COVID came and closed the business down. And so I was sat there at that point, like with all my boats and this brand new mothership and like all my staff who had no yeah. customers. So obviously I only had one thing to do. I was like, fucking, I'm going fishing, bro. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, got on my boat and we went, we went offshore to the islands. For, I think we were there like six weeks and just, just my wife and my kids mm -hmm. and we fished and it was during peak season as well. Uh, and we and we had the same thing, uh, not quite the build up of like we were known we were going to hook this fish, but we'd had really good fishing. And I was mm -hmm. out one morning, just with Angela, my wife, and my two boys. Like I said, this is all on video, all on GoPro. And 
I picked up her rod, which was a little bit lighter. She fishes hard. And I was just having a few casts. It had been slow and this giant, giant fish ate. And it was just us. And I, and I hadn't, I, and you, you can see this whole thing unfold. And I catch another, I think it was even bigger than my 70, but mm-hmm. you, the video, like eventually we, we can hardly get it in the boat. We can hardly get it out of the water. I don't have like a door or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So like we mouth gaff the fish and then we got like a giant industrial boga grip <laughs> um, that we then lift the fish into the boat. Um, I've actually pioneered, I'm uh, getting a little bit off story, but I've actually pioneered a, a lot of really good catch and release practices with GT, which are now like common practice. Like we get a big yeah. wet sling, hose in the mouth, barbless hooks, these boga rips, the way that we, we handle the fish. So I've always made a big effort with that, but this fish was so flipping big. We could hardly get it in the boat and eventually we get it in the boat. And at that point, uh, you, you see the video, that this all hell breaks loose. Like my son falls over and smashes his head. He's trying to film. He starts crying. My missus is almost crying because I'm, I, I can't even get the fish on my lap. Like mm-hmm. I'm lying on the floor. I'm trying to get this fish up for a trophy shot. Mm-hmm. And then as I'm trying to get this trophy shot, I'm starting to realize in my head, how the hell are we going to get this fish out of the boat? And then I start saying to Andrew and the boys, I'm like, guys, like, help. We've got, we got to get this fish back. And like, you can hear the panic and you can see the panic in my voice. And you see this size of this fish mm. and then it, this the next few minutes is just mad of just trying to get this fish back into the water and, and release it. It, it you know it was over 70 kilo and i was totally gassed from from the fight so yeah. then it was like like <laughs> i was totally gassed yeah. like in, in the video you hear me, <gasps> i'm like breathing and i'm, like, I'm quite a fit guy man yeah, but like, yeah, you know, yeah. This, you're not in bad shape yeah this this thing like just punished me those fish punish you anyway yeah so uh and this was like the, as big as they could possibly get but that was all mental and uh, we managed to get the fish back in the water we towed it for like 20 minutes with that boga just to help revive it we do that with all the big fish now yeah we used to throw them back in and like if they were a little bit sluggish we'd jump in and pull them back to the boat and then and tow them but now just as a general courtesy and i like it as well because then all the customers you get to spend more time with like your trophy you know yeah. so uh we put the boga back in their mouth and we tow them alongside the boat now until they're till they're super strong to swim off um but those would probably be my two favorite memories that if i I could relive anything would probably be either of those fish and the one with the family would top it just to to get that one with no other crew yeah and with with my with my boys and and my wife a memory for us all to have that was really really magic one of the things we were talking about earlier was just the importance of gear Mm -hmm. and we were at tasline is that how you say it yeah exactly and you were just talking about the braid that you use with them and Mm -hmm. um how every you can't have any spots of weakness in the armor yeah you know yeah talk to me a little bit about how you think about gear with the gt fishing and how you take care of gear how you select gear just kind of give me a rundown of all that yeah i i think gt gt fishing i mean i might be a bit biased obviously this is this is what i this is what i do so don't judge don't judge me with what i'm saying here but in my mind uh i think gt is the most Monster GT fishing is the most physically demanding uh, fishing uh, type that there is because, like, you can catch, you know, huge tuna, but generally you're driving in the boat and you're looking for a bust up or the birds or something, and then the fish are there. So, and you might be still you're on these really heavy rods, but you might only require two or three casts. The fish are there feeding. With GT, like I say, so we go into a reef, uh, engines are off, and you'll be casting. These laws are like, you know, 200 grams. And you'll be casting that thing like three, four hundred times in a day. And then you've got to back it up the next day. And then and eventually, like after about five, six hours fishing, you're so tired, then the fish eat. And you've got to, you've got to fight that thing. But it's mm-hmm. super physically demanding. 
typically the GTs feed harder when it's a rough seas anyway, so you're standing up, uh, casting. Obviously, we don't have any chairs or anything like that. Or, you know, you've got a bit of a gimbal bout, but otherwise there's nothing other other than just that rod connected to you and those fish. And then because, uh, you know, they live on the reef, they just want to go straight into the rocks. So if you give them a chance, they'll, they'll, they'll reef you straight away. So, yeah, you're fishing really, really heavy drag. Uh, and there's only two reels uh, on the market that can that we've found can sustainably or uh, consecutively you know catch fish like that you might have other reel like you get one big fish and it's trashed mm -hmm. um, but the only two reels really are the, the Shimano Stella uh, Daiwa Saltigas 18 or 20 thousands are the biggest ones that they do um, and the drag is near full lockdown you, you know you're probably looking at like 15 16 kilo a drag 150 pound braid 200 pound leaders the biggest hooks uh, generally if you see any any good GT uh, uh, laws uh, that are, and the Japanese predominantly make all the best like hand carved by a samurai sword mm. and like the special <laughs> word like they're mad for it man but uh, they don't come with hooks yeah. um, because the, the hooks that, that, that we need are like yeah it's like an anchor man they're, they're huge so super thick gauge steel hooks big split rings um, and and then like like I was saying, yeah, any any little chink in your armor is going to get exploited, and that was what happened with us. That first year I was there, we'd, we'd, I'd, I'd learned one problem. We talked about it earlier about even the spooling your reel. Like, you know, you can take your fishing reel to like a fishing shop or whatever, and and they'll spool it. But if you, when you're fishing such heavy drag, if you've got any squeeze, you know, you grab your spool and you squeeze your line. If there's any give at all, it's not tight enough. It has to feel like a solid as a rock. Cause if, you, got, you, you know, you've got your full retrieve back in and then the fish eats close to the boat and you've got 15, 16 kilo of drag and the, the line can dig into your spool. So that was a problem that, you know, I, I discovered and I was like, okay, I'm, I've got to do that, uh, spool that tight enough. And then my knots were a problem and then my rods were breaking. And yeah, if, 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 there's, if there's anything from point A to Z that, that those fish will, will find it, man, because it, it's just brutal. The, the fights are brutal. See, I've even seen like quite a few guys during the fight, they're not long fights because, like I say, you can't you can't give the, the fish much line. I mean, it'll take it anyway, but you don't you don't want to you don't want to play it out. You try and bring it in as quick as you can, so 10, 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes. But you see people, you know, vomit lactic acid. It's as hard as it's as hard as the fighting a fish gets. There's no like, you know, you catch a big marlin or you're in the, in the pelagic stuff. You're in deep water. You can let it take line. You haven't got a fish such such yeah. crazy drag. So yeah, it's it's tough, man. It's as physically demanding as as, as anything I've done, and then. When you get a good GT session, uh, I fish now in uh, April with a guy called Jonathan Brooks, uh, Froth Cafe for anyone. Uh, he's quite a, a big guy. I'm sure people who are listening have seen some of his stuff. He's an Aussie guy, big YouTube following. And, uh, and we, we put out, he put out a really cool video in May um, that, that we shot there. But we had the first two or three days, like I'm saying, we're just casting, casting, and we were like physically sore. Like we talk about it in the video about how sore we are just from casting all day, every day chugging big poppers big stick baits and then by day four we, we got a, an amazing feed we had three days where we caught like 30 40 fish all in from 40 to like 55 kilo range so really really big gt uh, and it was just mental by the end of the week like, yeah you just full like massive everything burns everything hurts cuts everywhere deck rash like slip on the boat we, we put super heavy uh slint on the deck so it's like you know like sandpaper almost kind of thing yeah because because yeah once when our center consoles you know they're wet boats it's it's big big seas a lot of the time for for the gt so everything's wet and slippy and yeah it's 
it's as tough as it gets. And you were saying that, you know, you're how gassed you were with, with your wife when you caught mm-hmm. that fish and you're, you're in good shape. I know mm-hmm. you take that serious. We've been mm-hmm. talking about how hard it is to try to eat, eat well at ICAST. You have to start <laughs> traveling with your own food if you're going to come here. And, um, but talk to me a little bit about how, like your training and how you try to keep yourself in good shape so that that's another thing is right. You're, you're working with clients and you're working with people and you don't want, you don't want to get gassed out. Yeah. So what does that look like for you? Yeah, actually, yeah, I mean, I, I, I sort of get a bit embarrassed or not embarrassed, but it, it sounds like such a dumb thing to say. But I mean, like I, I train to fish uh, a lot mm-hmm. of the time and, and it is required. And a lot of these people who when, when we generally get an inquiry saying, okay, we want to come over the peak period, we want to come and catch monster GT. And it's, it's a question that we ask, right? You know, we're like, okay, you know, how old are you? Like, are you fit? Are you able? Because like, this is real shit. This isn't, you know, it's dead easy to have a look at someone's Instagram and be like, oh, you know, that looks that looks fun. I'll go and give that a go. But uh, ultimately, we're in the business of catching and landing fish, not hooking them. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 so, yeah. Sometimes I do have to have that conversation with people and be like, listen, I don't think I don't think I'd love to take your money, mm-hmm. <laughs> but like, for, for me, you know. As a guide, and you know how it is, like we work really hard to put someone onto a fish, and there's nothing worse than, than, than you work really hard to put someone onto the fish, and then, you know, sure, p- people lose fish, shit happens, but, you know, we, we, we want to optimize all the chances we get. And like I said, I'm in the business of landing fish, man. I'm not in the business yeah. of hooking fish. So, in terms of like training and stuff like that, I do a lot of CrossFit, a lot of high intensity, high intensity stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, um, yeah, you need to be able to. Uh, at one point, I even started. A, I even started a Facebook page. I'm sure it's still going. It's called Fishing Fit. It was like this business idea I had. Um, but uh, in that, I talk a little bit about. I mean, even casting repetition, like, like I'm saying that that lures two two hundred grams, and you got hooks, and you're throwing that thing five hundred times maybe in a day. So then I started getting a lot of trouble, like my rotator cuff. And I'm overworking my shoulder, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm throwing everything forwards, but I'm not doing anything on the reverse. So like my different parts of my body were sort of overcompensating. And then I like picked up a hip injury from like rotating and like really loading up the cast and stuff like that. So eventually I figured out, okay, shit, if I want to be able to fish as hard as I want to and for a full six, seven days and optimize my trip, then I, I need to be fishing fit. And so, yeah, um, a lot of Olympic lifts, high heart rate stuff, but generally I'd say you need to be able to work at near max max for like 20 minutes so yeah at one point I used to fish with like my Garmin heart rate monitor on and have a look and yeah. like have a record <laughs> and like you know your heart rate's like 160 for like you know yeah. the whole time 160 170 like you're almost maxing out man so you need to be able to do that for sure yeah that's something I mean I grew up playing sports and was really into football and then from 20 you know early 20 mid 20s to about almost the end of my 20s Mm. I wasn't in very good shape but I think I just played so much sports that I was kind of enjoying just yeah being a little bit of uh being lazy and um and then about a year and a half ago I got I was just like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do this you know yeah and start eating better and working out again Mm -hmm. I feel and that was the thing I started focusing on was how I feel exactly which you know like I want to also like be 4 p.m yeah and still feel like i want to you know jump off the boat into the water and swim yeah. around for a second and not yeah. be not be 2 p.m and i'm dreaming of laying down having a drink because yeah. i'm so out of shape and um 
when I look at what you guys are doing with the GT and I look at the terrain and I look at all that too, I mean, if you're out really, really far and you start feeling really, really gassed, yeah. you're, you're, you're not close to the AC. No, you know, you're not close to, yeah. you forget your Oreos. God forbid you forget your Oreos <laughs> on the mothership, you know? I mean, so, you know, I've, I've definitely, I can tell that, that you take that serious. Talk to me too, a little bit about outside of fishing. What are some of the things that have helped you, you know, shape you to who you are today? Yeah, I think, um, I sort of touched upon it a little bit just now, but uh, sport, it, we were talking about that. I, I played a, a, a lot of rugby, um, and that's a, a really, you know, team environment, uh, team culture, yeah. um, working hard for each other in your team sort of thing. So I, I, I took a lot of life lessons, um, and, and I mean, I, I, enj I enjoyed the physical side of that as well. It's like... I, I've got this inner beast, so like, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I need to release that. So now that's also why I, if I don't go to the gym and I, I don't expire that energy, then I'm just itchy the whole day, like itching mm -hmm. to do something and I've got too much energy and then, then, I, then I can be a bit more of a grumpy person, I think. But like, yeah. if I, you know, I, I, need, I need to get that energy out one way or other. Like, if, you know, if, if, I'm, if I'm at home and I'm not fishing, then yeah, I've got to go to, i got to, you know, have a big gym session or go for a run or hike a mountain or do something and if I'm on the water then obviously it's fine because I'm expelling all that energy that way um, but yeah so, so, so just just being fit sports sports in general is something that's always uh, I found a uh, very interesting and then the other thing I think that shaped me the most is um, being lucky enough to grow up in various cultures in Dubai Kenya England uh, lived in Oman both north and southern Oman living in Nicaragua right now and just traveling a lot in general and experiencing different cultures um, and I'm, I'm enjoying doing that doing that with my children uh, now as well but mm. this puts you in good stead you know you it's it's easy now for me to travel it's easy for me to come and meet and be open with people and put yourself out there you know I, I always mm. used to travel alone and if I didn't make that effort to go and talk to people or, you know, make an effort to go and mingle and, and fit in, you'd just be alone. So it became very easy just to yeah. manipulate different situations uh, and and put on put on like a Ed's best face or, you know, <laughs> to, to sort of get what I wanted out of yeah. a group or, or something like that. I've, I've always been, um, yeah, thankful for those opportunities of traveling and, and mm -hmm. for how... Uh, you know, like I say, I find it quite easy or coming to these shows and meeting people and stuff like that. I think yeah. part of my personality is a little bit, you know, yeah, adventurous and, and, and it's good to be, I mean, the confidence, I'd, I'd say that's something, you know, traveling mm -hmm. and doing all that. It's been confident to meet new people and experience new things. Yeah, absolutely. It's been fun to hang out too, for sure. Yeah, man. I'm curious with all, with all your traveling outside of Oman, what's your favorite area to travel and fish so far? Uh, whew, that's a that's a good question. Australia was good. Papua New Guinea was good. Uh, Sri Lanka was good. I'm trying to think where else I fished. Uh, actually, I'm quite enjoying uh, some of the jungle stuff I'm doing there in Nicaragua. Um, I sort of briefly touched upon that the other day. I caught a, a huge tarpon uh, quite recently, which was which was rad. I was really looking forward to trying to tick that one off the list. But yeah. Ultimately, I've been spoiled with how hard GT pull is. Quite nothing like it. I was, I was, I was anticipating the fight to be a, a little bit more. Maybe I mean, as as it was my first one, I think I, my my tackle was maybe a little bit overrated. I was using like sixty pound. Yeah. So like sixty pound main line and stuff like that. So I punished the fish and had it beat within like five minutes, and it was like 140, 150 pound fish. So I was expecting more, but but just experiencing something new, like being in that jungle yeah. and doing something that was really cool. So I enjoyed that, but. 
I'd say my favorite of all time places would be French Polynesia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if I've just built that up too much in my head now, but the time that we went, I mean, we were living, you know, uh, we get four months of the year where we get a big monsoon in Southern Oman. So the sea is completely unfishable, just turns itself upside down and rages for like four months, uh, which is great because it gives the fishery a good break. So, but when, when we were living there year round, we'd work really hard for eight months of the year and then and not spend or, you know, to save everything because we're yeah. in the middle of flipping nowhere. And then we'd have four months of the year to travel. So I remember we went as a family to French Polynesia and I just, I've never seen so many different shades of blues and greens and so much life. It was just absolutely wild. So we flew into Tahiti uh, and then we got a small plane and went to the southernmost uh, island and uh, spent a month there on this, on this little place. And that was probably, that's probably the wildest place I've ever been, I think. And the fishing and stuff there was just fantastic. They get like one supply ship a month. Everybody wow. eats spam. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, not more spam. Oh my um, but uh, yeah, that place, that place would probably, probably mm. top my list. This is my, uh, my last question for our time together. And we'll definitely have to do it again. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hoping we'll get on the water somewhere, somehow. Yeah, man, I think I'd it'll happen. Maybe come down sure. to Nicaragua. I'm yeah. kind of thinking that's on the docket. But um, as you think about, so you're in your 40s now mm-hmm. and you still got a lot of good life ahead of you. What, what are you, what's something that you're hoping to see happen the next 20 years? Um, you know, it, when I knew I was coming on this, I think this is, this was something I was, I was, I was debating whether I bring up, but it's like a, a, with all the traveling and all this experience that I have, uh, I sort of mentioned it, I think a little bit earlier about having itchy feet. What's, what kind of sucks? The one drawback from, from all the traveling and the lifestyle that I've had, um, is I don't have anywhere to call home. Mm-hmm. Um, and now my parents are uh, almost 80. They've moved back t- to the UK after being abroad. And they were in Dubai for like 40 years. They never left. I-, I-, I left, so I was there for almost 30 years in Dubai. But Dubai is not my home. You know, that's where all my childhood was. Everything that I knew uh, has been demolished and built up. So I, g- I go to Dubai, I'm a tourist as much as anyone. I go to England, I'm a tourist. Uh, I'm living in Nicaragua now, but I'm, you know, I, it's not my home. And I've got this longing of wanting for there to be somewhere to call home. And I'm mm-hmm. always thinking, like my wife would say, like, you know, what if shit hits the fan in Nicaragua or whatever? Like, where do we go? Like, we don't, we don't, I don't have that family house. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something is an ambition of mine is to put some proper roots down somewhere because I've been, I mean, you know, don't get me wrong, man. I've a very privileged, very amazing life. Uh, traveled a lot but I think that's an important feeling to have or that security of yeah of, of, of having a home and for me it's like it's this weird like longing I have for something like that and it's something I want to have for my kids so yeah you know my, my, my wife and I are sort of looking and they're at that age now uh, they're 11 and 9 my boys and th- through their teens uh, we, we uh, with the first Gulf War that happened when we moved to Kenya and all of this stuff like I was moving uh, uh, moving around a lot uh, and it was quite stressful looking back now. Like, I didn't really think about it at the time. It was all an adventure. But for my boys, I think that's the one thing, business aside, that's my one big ambition now is just yeah. to try and find somewhere to put down roots and for, for my children and, and my family for when you know, they get older to know that they have a home. Yeah. yeah, that's good, man. Well, it's been so good hanging out with you and getting to know you and 
thought we could sit here a long time and yeah, yeah. I went by fast hear too. those stories but uh, man I'm so grateful for it and thank you for all your time and, and me, I mate. look forward to getting on the water man yeah bro I appreciate it it's been really cool to meet you and thanks for having me Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.